Well, good Sunday morning, everybody. How are we? Are we good? We glad to be here? You awake? We got some people awake over here, over, I don't know, and over here. Come on, wake up, everybody. I'm glad that you're here, and we are actually so far into this series that, uh, that, that you'll see where we're going with this, but we're so far into this series, and if you have missed some of this series, I totally recommend you go to YouTube, you go to, uh, go to the podcast, go to the website, and go in and catch yourself up with where we are, because we've been through, just verse by verse, through this study through First Peter, and there are certain things that are happening around, uh, and just the, around this area of Scripture that you really, really need, a, perhaps a really good grasp on, and you can get that by going and listening to some of those past messages, but I've got something for you today, too. Well, you know, I'm so glad that we just sang that song that that I'm no longer a slave to fear. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that if we're in Christ, yeah, we can clap to that, that's good, that if, we, if we're in Christ, that we are no longer enslaved to fear. And I believe that one of the ways that we are the most enslaved to fear, listen to me, I believe that one of the ways that we're most enslaved to fear comes to us sharing our faith with other people. I think that this, is, this becomes a roadblock for us in our faith instead of us embracing what it is and telling people about the good news of Jesus. I think that we as people can succumb to fear and we can become re, just remove ourselves from our obligation and responsibility of telling people about Jesus. That's where we're going to be eventually. But first I want to tell you this, uh, just have us read together this quote in the guy's name, who's known historically anyway, is Luca of Crimea. Crimea is the area he's from, around Russia. And he lived around the time of the 20th century going into World War I. And this is what he said, and I'll tell you why this, this quote is so profound in just a second. Guard this truth like the best treasure of the heart. This is what he says. Walk straight without looking right or left. Let us not bother with what we hear against religion or lose our bearings. Let us hold on to the faith, which is the, which is the eternal, indisputable truth. Amen. That's a profound verse, or a quote rather, but what is even more profound is his story. You see, Luca, as he's known historically, uh, again, he lived a century ago, but here's, here's something that perhaps you didn't know or maybe you've never even heard this name before. This individual grew up in, I would say, a pretty affluent family, but something profound, that happ- something profound happened in his life. After he graduated, his principal gave him a New Testament. It was like, here's your graduation gift. We still do this today sometimes. Gave, uh, gave Luca a New Testament. He fell in love with the Jesus of the New Testament. He wasn't a Christian until he received that New Testament and he gave his life to God. He realized that he was a sinner. He was in need of a Savior and it was only through Jesus could he be one with God the Father. And he radically changed and he gave his life to Jesus. We had actually studied uh, to be a doctor, a surgeon actually, an eye surgeon. I can't imagine when eye surgery was like a century ago, but he was. And actually, he was a really good one because he had the ability, and God had gifted him with this talent, he had the ability of helping people to see in a time where people couldn't see. But here's what's really cool about this. He didn't work in just like a typical hospital or those kinds of things. Instead, he went out to the poorest of poor. He went out to people who couldn't pay him anything, and he helped give those people sight. That's incredible. 
And that's what he did. So all part of his journey, and when he would go out and do that, all of that's great, and he had his faith intact, and he worked at the same time where he was a physician, but then also around the same time that the Russian government empire was gaining ground, they started to put pressure on the church and started to put pressure on Luca and people like him. And all this pressure that was imposed upon him was wanting him to, in essence, live a faith, that have a faith that was squashed. So in the time where other people were shrinking back from the faith, he stepped forward and he became a deacon. Ultimately, he then even became a bishop. And even as the, the Russians are putting all this pressure and they're persecuting people and they're exiling them and throwing them, to pr- th- throwing them into prison, he's now gaining ground and influence both as, the, as a physician but also as this great person of faith in the church. Because the Russian government realized that he was in opposition to them, they said, well, let me give you a sweet deal. How about you come work for us as a spy? He turned that idea down. He says, I'm not going to betray my faith by being a spy for you. And I believe that God gave him the wisdom to know what was happening at the time. He turned that down, so the Russians, in turn, ramped up their persecution on him. They imprisoned him, they beat him, and they exiled him to Siberia. That's so foreign in our day because we're like, well, we live in America. Like, that could never happen here. Careful saying never, of course. But as he went into Siberia, do you think that he stopped doing the work of God? Somebody tell me. Do you think he stopped? No. He simply took it to Siberia. He just changed zip codes. That's all he did. And he took the same faith that he had, and he went into Siberia, and he's still offering whatever care he can as a physician. But because he was so well-respected, then the Russians actually used his services again, and so brought him out of Siberia to use his services. The reason why that I even mention this quote, now that you have context for this quote, is he's saying, guard this truth like the best treasure of your heart. He's somebody who faced all sorts of trial. Suffering, persecution, and exile. But what he didn't do was he did not make a line between the sacred and the secular. He didn't make a line to say, well, this is my profession, but this is, this is my faith. He didn't draw that line. As a matter of fact, for him, at the same time frame where the opposition from the, from the Russians was coming in, he gained more perspective and more perspective and more perspective. And as he lived throughout his life, He saw himself always as this, listen, as a physician and as a priest. And as a physician and as a pastor. There was no line between the sacred and the secular. And there shouldn't be in our lives either. I want you to know this. People know who you are by observing how you are. People know who you are by observing how you are. There are times you don't have to say a word, but there are people who observe your life to know if your life, if it even looks different than theirs. People know who you are, who you truly are by observing how you are. This would have been true of of Luca, because in his day and age, who he was was not separated from his work. It was all connected. He just changed zip codes. He didn't turn his faith around and he didn't give that away. Let me ask you this question. Is your faith up front or is it hidden? It's getting personal now, right? Is your faith up front, meaning, is your faith up front in in your words and in your actions? 
or is it hidden? There's actually a passage of Scripture where Jesus talks about this. In Matthew 5.14, he said this, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. That would be crazy, right? I added that, in case you wondered. Instead, they put it on its stand and to give light to everyone in the house. In the same way, this is what Jesus said, Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. There was something about our faith that was supposed to be told and shown. Leads us to the bottom line for today's talk is this, faith in Christ is to be seen and heard. It's to be seen and heard. In other words, we're to be people talking about our faith. If you're afraid of talking about your faith, you have to ask yourself some questions. Why am I afraid of talking about my faith? Perhaps I don't have a faith. Perhaps. Or perhaps I'm afraid. And perhaps it's a matter of repentance. Perhaps you don't have a, a relationship with God like you ought to. Perhaps. But that's what we're going to see today in 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 13 through 22. That a Christian witness, it needs to be heard and seen. Observing in our life and listening to our words, pointing people to Christ. This passage of Scripture, I just want to give you a little word of a caution here. Part of this is going to be really easy to understand, then there's going to be a part that is not easy to understand. And I'll tell you when we get there, it's one of the most troubled passages in all of the Bible. And, and I have literally studied two or three verses, these two or three verses, for more hours than I have any other passage ever. And I've been preaching for about 14 years now, just, just so, so you have a reference point. So I've studied this passage because it's a difficult one. But... The first part is it is easy to understand. Let's go into verse 13 of 1 Peter. This is what it says. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it is in God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He has put to death in the body. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt, meaning not the, the literal practice of being immersed for baptism, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. That's someone who's confessed their sins, asked Jesus to forgive them of their sins. Then and only then can have someone have a good conscience towards God. The passage continues, the end of verse 21. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at, the, is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to Him. Ultimately, this whole passage is about Jesus and about how we should be witnesses to the work of God. That's ultimately what this is about. 
If you noticed in verse 22, there's this reference about God's right hand. Anytime in the scripture that there's a mention of the right hand or God's right hand, just know that that is a power, excuse me, that is a position of power and prestige. So what Peter is saying about Jesus, he's elevating the work of Jesus, and he says that he is sitting at God the Father's right hand. He is in the place of power and prestige. That's what he's saying. And ultimately, we could get into this passage, and you can get so deep in the weeds in this passage over the parts that are hard to understand. But what I, what I want you to really get up front is this. Peter's audience would have known this. They didn't need thousands of years of, of study to understand this. I believe this was something that would have been just taken at face value to Peter's original audience. As this letter would have been circulated throughout the provinces around that area, we know this because of the beginning of 1 Peter when we started the series, these these provinces that the letter was circulated, this would have been common knowledge to them. And I believe that one of the things that we've done as people is we have studied, studied, studied things and actually made some things more confusing than what they even need to be. But I'm not going to pretend to tell you that I have all the answers because in all the hours that I studied in those passages, I felt like I just did a big circle and came back to, I think this is it. So here we go. All right. So the first thing I want you to kind of take hold of in this passage, right back to verse 13, it says, who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? It's like, who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? So this word eager, right here in verse 13, is is an interesting word that Peter is also trying to convey a deeper message. That audience would have known that this particular Greek word, the root of this, the, the root of this word is the same word that you would get the word zealot. And if you're familiar with any church history, you know that the that the zealots were like, they were just crazy about the government. It wasn't even about God. It wasn't about faith. It wasn't about Judaism. They were all about political rule. They're fanatical patriots. And they were pledged to liberate their native land by every possible means. So they were very militant. What Peter is saying is to love goodness with that passionate intensity with which the most fanatical patriots love their country. So he's saying, Look at the zealots. He says, you should, have, you should love goodness. Right back to verse 13. Let's look at it again. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do what? To do good. He says, who's going to harm you if you are so zealous to do good? So this is the pursuit. He says, we need to be so eager to do good in our day. He also mentions one verse later. He says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. You see, there's two different ways that that we suffer. We suffer first because of our humanity, meaning that there's disease and there's grief and there's anguish and there's, there's, there's the little tension I have in my chest right now as we speak that I've been trying to pray away for the last couple of days. Part of my humanity, my humanity, I'm not gonna have a heart attack, okay? It happens all the time. I've already seen a doctor. I'm good, relax, okay? I'm trying to as well. But it's because of my humanity, you have different things. You have aches and pains with age. That's your humanity. You, you have, you know, all those ouch moments, maybe as a parent, and that your kid leaves the Legos on the floor, and then you walk on said floor, not paying attention to the fact that there are Legos on said floor, 
And then you step on a Lego. And then all of a sudden, maybe the best thing you can say is ouch, but you're probably going to scream. That is because that is just the type of suffering that comes with our humanity. But also, there's a suffering that we should expect because of our Christianity. And one of the things that I've seen, and I believe that in some ways that God has used me and perhaps some of my family to be like a prophetic witness for this area of being transplanted here nine years ago is we're not from here, so then we were given fresh eyes to see the culture for what it is. And many people say, well, what suffering would we have here because of our Christianity? I mean, I, told, I just had a conversation before the service about a beheading that happened because of Boko Haram in Africa. And every once in a while, those things circle, they, they circle around. The Voice of the Martyrs does a phenomenal work of bringing all of that suffering to the forefront so you see that there is suffering that goes on in the world. And you may think, well, what suffering, what persecution would I have because of my Christianity? I mean, after all, I, I can, I'm, came to church today, didn't have to run from anyone. I'm going to go eat today. I'm going to go home and take a nap today. I'm going to go do whatever I want today. I don't have to hide my faith. I can be on social media. I can, put, I can put Jesus verses everywhere, my shirt, my car, my truck, my social media feed. I can put it everywhere. But let me tell you this. If you actually make your faith a priority, you will become unpopular in this in this culture. If you make your faith a priority, you will become unpopular. You will. We've seen it. While it's, everybody seems like, oh, we're, we, you know, this is the, this is the gospel, the, the gospel-saturated area. I believe that it may have been uh, an O'Connor, the, the author, who called this a gospel-haunted culture. And it is. It's like the gospel's everywhere, but yet it doesn't have the power much of anywhere. And if you actually make your faith a priority and, and when your faith is a priority that those choices then impact the rest of the world, trust me, you're going to be viewed as one of those perhaps crazy Jesus people and you're going to become unpopular. I'm not trying to tell you that, that I'm high and mighty, that I'm this, this super spiritual person, but I can tell you that we have become, that our families become unpopular because we have taken some unpopular posi biblical positions that fly in the face of even what people call Christianity here. And I say that not that I'm better than you or you're better than me. That's enough. If you say, if you're, if you're hearing that, you're missing the point. What I'm saying is I believe that God's given me fresh eyes to show you some things too. So if you take those positions about your Christianity, you will endure some suffering and most likely what it would look like here is becoming unpopular. Maybe not being invited to some parties, maybe not being invited to some dinners, maybe pushed out of some family, some family events. We also have seen this. We've also experienced this. For it's like the rest of the family does this, but yet they know that we won't support it, so then we're kind of ostracized from it. Well, we can do so through the power of God, and so can you. You see, every Christian needs to be able to at least do this, to give a reasonable explanation of their faith and their walk with God. Every Christian, and notice it says every Christian, and Peter didn't say, hey, if you're super spiritual, this is what you need to do. If you're like a level five Christian, this is what you need to do. When your spirituality is peaking at 10, this is what you need to do. He was implying that if you call yourself a Christian, that you need to be able to give a reasonable explanation of your faith. Doesn't mean that we need to be theologians. We're gonna write our own commentaries but it means that we should be able to give a reasonable explanation of our faith and our walk with God. Think of walk with God as a lifestyle. So I'm going to 
bring home five different principles right here in the passage that Peter talks about. First, first thing of the five things that every Christian needs to be able to do, again, right from the Word, to give a defense of their faith that is reasonable, that is reasonable. Meaning that there's thought, that there's logic, there's, there's, there's things that we should be able to convey to people who are curious about the faith. Notice I didn't say you need to be able to argue your faith or I'm not saying you need to stand in front of the courthouse to where you need to preach and scream to the rest of the world about your faith if you feel so inclined to do so. Awesome. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what Peter's saying. He's saying you need to be able to give a defense of your faith that is reasonable. That means if you're a student or you're a senior citizen and anywhere in between, you need to be able to give a defense for your faith that is reasonable that you can give thought and reason to why you believe what you believe. Second thing, give a defense that is gentle. That is gentle. It's gentle. You, it, when you're gentle, there's also comes with it some empathy of understanding that this person is far from God. I was once far from God. Therefore, I can be empathetic. I was right where they are. So I don't have to approach this with judgment. I can approach this by being gentle because you know what? We may not have a lot in common, but we have humanity in common and we have this, this fallenness I, that even if you're in Christ now, you, you weren't born in Christ. So there had to have been a time where you're not in Christ to where now you are. And now you go back and you connect with, this, with your humanity to theirs, your past fallenness to their current fallenness. And now that brings just an opportunity to be gentle. Not to be condescending, but to be gentle. Third thing, give a defense that is respectful. Respecting that they may have some presupposed ideas that actually work against the faith. Respectful and not treating that person like a project or a problem that needs to be fixed, but treating them like a person that needs to be saved. A person that is far from God and they they need the radical love of God. And be a respecter of them as a person. That they have a story. That they've got a family. That they've got trauma. But to be respectful. Christians, we need to be respectful of those who are not Christians. And not judgmental. The fourth thing is a clear conscience. Give a defense of their faith with a clear conscience. Meaning that at no point should you have to sin to lead people who are in sin out of sin. You shouldn't have to adopt a sinful lifestyle just so you can hopefully one day share the gospel with somebody who's also in that sinful lifestyle so that they can be saved. Like, that's foolish. They don't don't need you to, to get in there like that. They need you to stand outside of the pit and let them know there's a way out of the pit. You don't get in the pit of their sin and get all filthy with them so then your life looks like theirs. While they're in the pit and their life may look filthy, but yours may not look as, as clean as what you want it to, and your walk with God may not be where you want it to be, but yet if you have a clear conscience, that means you can stand outside of the pit and say, hey, this is Christ's work in me. Let me show you a better way. Fifth thing is this. Give a testimony of their faith that glorifies God. This is the... This is the the North Star, the guiding principle of all the the rest of the five that glorifies God. 
Meaning that when you're leading someone to faith, you have the opportunity of sharing your faith in words and in actions. You do so by glorifying God. I believe this is what Luca's life message was. That he was a physician to the glory of God and he wanted to be a, a priest and he wanted to be a pastor to the glory of God. And there was no dividing line between sacred and secular. To him, God touched all of it. Another thing I want us to touch on is this. The Christian life is to be a reasonable explanation of our faith, meaning the Christian life or the Christian lifestyle. You may say, well, what does this have to do with anything, Pastor? I just don't get it. Meaning that a Christian lifestyle should look different than a non-Christian lifestyle. This week, I was looking on Instagram, and a friend of mine, well, kind of acquaintance, really, not really a friend, but somebody who I admire, he wrote a really good book by the name of Heroic, great men's author. But I, was, I follow him on Instagram, and I was looking at his story, and he was doing this silent retreat in Nashville. It was a two-day silent retreat. And my initial thought was, who does that? Like, go somewhere to be quiet. Just stillness and silence. But then the thought right after that was, man, I need that. Like, I mean, it was instantaneous. I'm like, I need that. Because I don't know, I don't know about you and how much time you can actually spend in silence, and I don't know how audibly you can hear God's voice, but I can hear God's voice a lot more clearly when things are silent around me. When I turn off my phone, when I turn off other voices, when I turn off the radio, and I remove myself from distractions, and I can sit before God. You see, if you were to make a practice of sitting in silence, that's going to look completely different than people who are not followers of Jesus, and it's going to look different for what we call cultural Christians, people who say they're Christians, but their lifestyle shows that they're not. You see, we want to evangelize both group of people because both group of people are lost. Those who say, I'm not a Christian, and those who say that they are a Christian, but their life does not fit that lifestyle. This is what we see in our culture a lot. Another thing, if you make it a priority to have Sabbath time, where you, and I would love to be, I would love to be able to stand up here and say, we have 24 hours, and we don't have 24 hours. Sometimes we have an hour. Sometimes it's two hours. Sometimes it's four hours. Sometimes it's eight hours. But when you, when you prioritize a Sabbath time as a family, even other people around you who, who say that they're Christians and certainly non-believers are going to look at your life and think, whoa, why do you do that? And then that's an opportunity to give an explanation for the faith that you have to work out the five principles we talked about a couple minutes ago. So in silence, in solitude, and in Sabbath, it just when you take the Bible seriously, if you just take the Bible seriously and you apply its truths into your life, your lifestyle is going to be a display of the sign and wonder of God. That's, it's going to reflect greatly on God, and it's going to be a contrast to the culture that we live in. Enough said there. Verse 18 says this. Back to the Word. Verse Peter 3.18. says, for, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. For what reason? To bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. So Peter gets to a central message here. He says, hey, when you give this logical, reasonable, gentle, 
conscious clearing, glorifying uh, message of the gospel, he says, oh yeah, and it's right here one verse later. He says, this is your reasonable explanation for Christ died for sins once for all. I love how he makes it very simple, very plain, very clear to understand. He's like, oh yeah, one verse later, here's, here's a good place to start, everybody. For Christ died for sins once for all. Start here. The righteous for the unrighteous. That Jesus Christ was the righteous one and we're the unrighteous. And it's only through the blood of his righteousness can our sins be cleansed that we can be considered righteous. To do what? To bring you to God. This is an interesting word, to bring. And in Jewish thought, which the audience would have had two different main thoughts. They would have had the Jewish thought, which was the thought connecting way back in Exodus. And it was the thought that no one can approach God except the high priest. That there was this barrier between God and, and, and the high priest. As a matter of fact, this is what the Scripture would say that you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting. The presence of God was there. And only the priest had the, had the right to have close access to God. That would be the Jewish background. The Greek background is different. Of course, the New Testament, in case you didn't know, was translated from Greek primarily. So the Greek background would have been this, again, from the same, the same word to bring in or to, to bring it would have implied bringing right access. Through Christ, we have access to grace. This is what it says in Romans 5, 2, that we have access to grace. That through Christ, that we have access to the Father. Jesus said that himself in John 14, 6. It was also said by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, 18. And then it says, through him, through Jesus, we have boldness and access and confidence to come to God. And we see that from Ephesians three twelve. Here's a way of illustrating what he's saying, just so we're clear. These keys were handed down to me. They're a family heirloom from the actual house that my dad was born in. If you could see them, these are really, really old keys. And most likely, these keys are probably 100 years old. And you may think, and some people tend to think, well, I'm a Christian, so that means that I hold the keys so I can just, I, I have access. I can just get in. It's up to me. That's not the way that faith in Christ works. Because in accordance with this verse, again, go to this verse again, if you would, verse 18, it's on the screen. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. So it is not you who holds the keys. It's Jesus who holds the keys. Let us not too, think too highly of ourselves, but yet let us be dependent on humility. Let us be dependent on going before God in repentance, understanding that it is only Jesus who gives us access. You are not the key holder to heaven. It is Christ who is the key holder to heaven. You weren't good enough to, ha to hold the keys. Amen? At the end, of, <laughs> the end of this passage, when he talks about that, that Christ sits at the right hand, he's saying because he's in the power, he's in the position of power and prestige, he's the only one strong enough to hold the key. So it is only through Christ that we have access to the Father or confidence to pray or truly even the ability to believe. Back to this passage. As we continue on, we're going to get into the troubling passage. 
I love what Martin Luther said about this. He said, a wonderful text is this, where we're getting ready to go. He said, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament. So that I do not know for certainty just what Peter means. So, pretty smart guy. I give you that warning. I'm not nearly as smart as him or many others who've been perplexed by the passage that we're about to get into. But we're, we're about to wade into it together. So, here we go. Verse 18 first. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. So let's stop right there. So we know that Peter is drawing a connection with Noah and Christ. So these two things are working together. And again, one of the reasons why this passage, I believe, has become obscure, as Martin Luther said, it's because we've spent 2,000 or so years studying a verse, trying to gain an understanding, but I believe fully that Peter and his audience knew full well what was being talked about. I believe that it wasn't a mystery. I believe that, that when they read it, they're like, ah, I got it. And we've been spending thousands of years now trying to think, how, do I, how can I have it? Like Peter obviously did. So... Because this is a challenging passage, I want to give you the five main views. I believe that only two of these are plausible. These won't be on the screen. The first one is the one that I believe in the most from all of the study and from other people who've studied this as well. So the middle three, I'm automatically throwing out the first and last one. Um, I believe that could have credibility, but I still believe the first one is best. So first view is this, and the one that I'm holding to. That when Noah was building the ark, Christ... In spirit was in Noah's preaching of repentance and righteousness. And it was Christ was preaching through him to the unbelievers at that time who were on earth, but then were now spirits in prison. So it was it was these this group of people that I believe that he's talking to. This can gain some credibility by looking at verses. We're not going to go there, but I'll just tell you so you can write it down if you want to. Genesis 6-2 or Genesis 6, 5 through 7 are some connecting verses there. And again, this is the view that I hold. That when God was building, or that when Noah, excuse me, was building the ark, that Christ in spirit was in Noah preaching repentance and righteousness through him to those unbelievers. That to me is the core of this message. The second position is this, that after Christ died, that he had gone to hell after he died and gave the unbelievers in hell an opportunity, a second chance to get right with God. That should automatically make you pause and say, well, that just doesn't seem right because it's not. There's no biblical grounds for that. Once you die, you either die in Christ, or you die separated from Christ. And we could also go to another passage. Again, I won't do this. I believe it's Luke 16 or 17, where it talks about Abram's bosom. It's a confusing passage as well. But you could go to that passage too to verify what I'm saying. That once, once you die, that your ultimately every decision before death has been made for you. And secondarily, if Peter 
was saying, no, 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 that Jesus went to hell to give people a second chance, Peter would have been undermining his whole letter, everything he's written so far. Because he's been talking about suffering and persecution. And he's, he talked about in chapter 2 that we're a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people belonging to God. And how we need to be living as strangers of the world and citizens of heaven. If, if Peter was saying this, this would have undermined everything that he had taught up to this point. So we can kick that out automatically. Another one is this, that the third view is that Christ, after he died, that he went and preached in hell, proclaiming to them... That he, was the, that he was powerful and that he was deserving the place of prestige. And while there is a little bit of evidence for this, I don't think that this makes sense for this reason. Because Jesus didn't need to go to hell to make a victory lap to say that he was Jesus. We know that ultimately that there is a final judgment that is coming. We know this because of Revelation. And there is going to be a final judgment coming later. And then they will stand before God and that final judgment will be the one that will be the, their condemnation into the lake of fire, into hell, the literal place of hell. So that I kick out because Jesus didn't need to take a victory lap. This isn't NASCAR. We don't need to go around the track to let everybody know that we won, okay? It's Jesus. Fourth thing, and again, there's a word in here that if you're a Christian, you should pause and say, that doesn't seem right, because it's not. The fourth view is this, that after Christ died, that he proclaimed release to the people who had repented just before they died in the flood, and that they were imprisoned in purgatory. That's the word that should make you pause. That's not a word that, that Christians believe, only Catholics believe in that, and they don't use the Bible as justification primarily. They use other writings that did not make it into the Bible to back up that belief, so I reject that automatically. And the last one is this. This does have some credibility, but this also leans upon another writing that is not in the Bible. The last one is this. After Christ died, or after, or after he rose, but but before he ascended into heaven, that he traveled to hell and proclaimed triumph over the fallen angels who had sinned by marrying the human women before the flood. This was a thing, and you can actually read that for yourself in Genesis 1 through 7. Excuse me, Genesis 6, 1 through 7. So that is a thing, but a couple of reasons why I kicked this out, because much of this evidence is actually rooted in, in a historical writing, a Jewish historical writing called First Enoch that did not make its way into the Bible. And there's a lot of superstition and a lot of exaggeration, and which is one of the reasons why it didn't make it into the Bible in the first place. So I, I reject it because of that, but also at the flood, it wasn't the spirits who were punished. It was the people who were punished. It was eight, only eight who were saved through the flood. The spirits were not punished, but people. So, again, because of these reasons, I think this is very unlikely. But, back to our passage. It says, uh, in the end of verse 20, In it only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but a pledge of a good conscience before God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus. So, it seems to me, that Peter is trying to connect what's happening in his day, but also what's happening, what was happening in Noah's day. So I have a few things that I want to talk about this, and which also led me to 
the conclusion that I had in my position that I mentioned earlier. So some parallels between Peter's day and Noah's, and they're pretty striking. Like Noah and his family, the believers around, like Noah and his family, the believers in Peter's day were a minority living amongst a wicked generation. So both groups of people were living around wickedness. Also, Noah was righteous, and we know this um, from Genesis 6.22 and Genesis 7.5. And he was calling them, into, calling them to be righteous, and Peter was doing the same in his life and ministry. Noah witnessed boldly to the unbelievers around him, preaching repentance and the warning of judgment. Peter did the same. Noah built the, the ark, knowing that destruction was looming over the world by flood. And in Peter's day, they... The, there was also some things that Peter knew that the fall of Jerusalem was going to be happening just years later. In 70 A.D., we know this historically, that Jerusalem fell. There's some others. Um, In Noah's day, the world was destined for destruction by flood. Peter's message, and Peter would say this in 2 Peter 3, 7, he would speak about the world that was destined to be destroyed by fire. So there's there's some others that I'm not going to, share all of those with you. But I will bring the message home with with these couple of ideas, um, and then we're going to close it out. The first idea I just want to bring to you is this. You can't control what people say, but you can control if it's true. In the message here, what Peter is saying, backing up a little bit, He said, it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. But Christ died for for sins and all of these types of things. Just proceeding to this, talks about us being prepared to give an answer for everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Meaning that even what they're saying is not true. You can't control what people say, but you can control if it's true. So our lifestyle should be one of being with Christ. So I'm going to give you some some tips, if you will. And the first one is this. When interacting with unbelievers or nominal Christians, we'll call it. So if you're going to interact with unbelievers and nominal Christians, and my hope is that you would be spurred to action to do so if you're in Christ. First thing I want to leave you with is this. Lead with love and close with conviction. So lead in that that conversation, that dialogue. Lead with love, but then close with conviction. Meaning a conviction about your faith and why your faith should, should matter to the person you're speaking to. Second thing, don't freak out at people's questions. They're gonna ask questions. Don't freak out at people's questions no matter how strange they might be. We live in strange days. People are asking some strange questions, but don't freak out. Sit down, have the conversation. Even if you don't have answers, it's okay. Third thing goes with the second one. Listen without judgment. Even when they're asking questions, just listen to them. If they have objections to, to the Christian faith or organized religion or to a certain church in town or whatever, listen without judgment. Again, this is being gentle, approaching them in the way that they need to be approached. 
Next thing, affirm the person's intentions. Affirm the person's intentions. If they're sitting down having a a spiritual conversation with you, there's some obvious intentions there that seem to be positive. So affirm that person's intentions. What they intend, at least they're curious. So there's something about that 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 is intriguing to them. The next thing is this. Next thing. Steer a person to the gospel. If you're in the middle of a conversation, don't just grab the steer. You wouldn't just grab the steering room and like yank it over because all of a sudden the centrifugal force is going to chuck the person right out of the car, right? We don't want to do that. So instead, you just want to steer the conversation to the gospel. Again, all of these are ways for you to connect with people today. People have changed over the last 20 or 30 years. And with the, with the changes, we have to change and adapt the way that we approach people if we're going to share faith with them. The next thing is this. Quick is fast and fast is fake. In years gone by, we, people had a presupposed idea. People were naturally curious about the faith. So we had the evangelism explosion back from the 70s. We had the four spiritual laws. The, these things were highly effective in their day. We've had some other things. We, maybe some gospel evangelism training like I had, share Jesus without fear, all of these things. But what they tend to do is they rush the conversation. And if you rush the conversation, remember this, fast is quick, or quick is fast, and fast is fake. They need that, people need authenticity, and if you simply rush through the process, they're thinking that you are inauthentic, because people today want to have a conversation. Back then, you could just confront someone head on, you could do street evangelism more effectively, you just confront them, and let me just give you this, and you're going to have the gospel, and then I can walk away and go find somebody else. It's just not the way that it works anymore. Those things were highly effective. And I'm not saying they wouldn't be effective in some ways. But people have changed, so we have to change the way that we reach them. And the last thing is this. Leave time for discussion. This may not be a one and done. This may be a two-time opportunity. Maybe three times where you have to go back and you have the initial conversation. And by God's grace, maybe you'll have a second conversation, a third conversation, a fourth conversation. But you need to leave time for discussion. People are accessed to all sorts of lies, and they need time to decipher the truth. And the Spirit of God is in all of that, and the Spirit of God will lead that person to repentance and to salvation in the Spirit's time. Amen.